I'm Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. Maybe I should talk a little more quietly. That might help. Hey, have any of you guys been following some of the women's soccer this summer, the World Cup? Raise your hand if you have been. Whoop, whoop. It has been so much fun to watch. And I don't know if anyone caught the last game against the Netherlands and the little uh, tangle between uh, Lindsay Horan and the Netherlands star. Patty, play that clip. Did well until the end, and Horan stripped it. She got hit from behind by Vanderdon. Played across, and that's wide, and Horan is still down. Vanderdon is her teammate with Club Leon. She goes back to the complement of 11. She was not happy. And that was Horan going in on Vanderdon after that challenge. In swinging ball, headed down, tied at one. She did it, Horan! Well, what do we say? The United States needed to find a way back into this match, and it'd be a good time to do it on set pieces. Lindsay Rand. What is it about that scene that just felt so dang good? There was some kind of vindication in that, wasn't there? It's like, yep, she was being hassled by that uh, star from the Netherlands team. And there's something deep inside every single one of us that just kind of wanted to stick it to her just a little bit, right? Is it just me who had those feelings? But there is something in us that whether it's sports or the movies and shows we watch that we tend to like put people in categories of the good guys and the bad guys. Those are, that are in the right, those that are in the wrong. Those that deserve it. And I was thinking, my husband and I just finished the Jack Ryan series. If any of you guys watched that, he's the CIA. It was the fourth series. And I was thinking while we were watching it, there's something a little bit wrong about this because deep inside, I was just like, you go get them. Like, you get them. And when I say get them, that means you go out there and you kill them. That would be antithetical to everything I believe. Antithetical to the belief that all people created in the image of God, that we see God in everyone. But there's something in us, I think, a hunger for that sort of vindication, the revenge. You know what? Neurologists tell, tell us that revenge satisfies the same parts of your brain that feeds that, that's stimulated by eating. Isn't that interesting? But there is that seems to be wired in us. And I think we've all experienced sort of that hunger for doing what's right. But the stakes are a lot higher than just movies and sports that we watch. You know, we live in a hurting world. And there's a lot of painful, violent things that happen in our larger world. A lot of painful things in our own life. And I think even in those situations, we've experienced that hunger. We live in a culture that celebrates that hunger. And somehow in the moment of that painful thing happening, somehow in that moment, we buy into the promise that, you know what, it's going to feed us, it's going to satisfy us, and it's even going to empower us. 
that vindication, revenge, it never lasts that long. And ultimately, it never changes anything. So we're continuing in our series, Dancing in the Darkness, by Dr. Reverend Otis Moss III, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. And tonight, we're going to talk about prophetic grief. This idea that to forgive is actually to build spiritual resistance. I said it before, and I'm going to say it a couple times in this message, we live in a world of hurt. We can look around our world, we can look in our lives, and there's a history of pain and suffering. We have a history of racism and sexism and homophobia, oppression, violence, and we stand in those spaces every day in our life. And probably more because of what I do, I think a lot about the church, what goes on in the, the big C, the patriarchy, the power mongering, the sex abuse, the men that have just recently decided in one of the largest denominations that, hey, while women are equal, you know, they really aren't qualified by God to be in pastoral leadership. We live in a world where those same men stand behind a pulpit and they tell us that God's amazing grace and love does not extend to our LGBTQ plus family. We live in a country where guns are God. And politicians have the audacity to claim broadly that immigrants are thieves and rapists. We have politicians that are actually saying that blacks benefited from slavery we have politicians that are telling us that women's reproductive rights should be criminalized. We live in a country that turns a blind eye to mass shootings even when they're in our schools and they involve our children. We live in a country that turns a blind eye to the homelessness, the hunger, the generational poverty and violence. We live in a world of hurt. And we can look at our own lives and we will find the broken promises, the hurt feelings, the betrayals, the physical and emotional wounds. There's not a person here who couldn't tell a story about how they've been hurt or victimized by another. But beneath the pain and the wounds and the losses and the memories lie the question of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said that everybody agrees on forgiveness, except when they're asked to actually forgive. But we do know what Jesus had to say about it. In Matthew 18, Peter's struggling with some sin in the church, and he comes forward and he says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And for Jesus, forgiveness wasn't a quantifiable event. It's a quality. It's a way of living and being and loving and relating and thinking and seeing. Forgiveness is the way of Christ. So what do we do then? What do we do when we have someone or something that we need to forgive. 
There's lots of responses we could have. Some will still try to seek revenge. Some will run from the relationship and the life. Some will sit in that darkness and let it paralyze them. Because forgiveness is hard. But all of those responses, they leave us stuck in the past, tied to the victimizer, and without the full life that God has for us. The reality is forgiveness is the only way forward in our lives. But it doesn't mean to forget. And in the words of Dr. King, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. We have to acknowledge what's been done. We have to remember it. We have to refuse to accept it, not only in the moment, but in the future. And what we do know is that neither forgiving and forgetting nor revenge makes the world any different. It doesn't move us forward Now, the Reverend Dr. Moss would tell us that there's a deeper spiritual challenge for us here, a deeper understanding, a widening of the lens that forgiveness is spiritual resistance and to practice spiritual resistance after we've suffered a loss or an assault, we actually have to make a different choice. So how do we respond In a world in which we experience hurt and betrayal, physical and emotional wounds, violence, how do we respond to that both personally and communally? Well, Dr. Moss's father said we need to breathe and grieve. We need to breathe and we need to grieve. And the choice becomes how is it that we're going to grieve? Because there is different kinds of grief. There's pathetic grief, the kind of grief that causes us to be blinded by bitterness, hate, and despair. It's the kind of grief that puts us in the same class as the person who caused the grief. It's the kind of grief that sends us into a darkness where there is no light. Now, pain and anger anger are necessary, and they're real, but they're not enough. They may be cathartic in the moment, that release of outrage, of tears. But ultimately alone, they fail. They fail when it comes to true resistance and liberation. So pathetic grief, it acknowledges our pain and suffering, but it does nothing to change the forces in the world that gave rise to all that suffering. And ultimately pathetic Grief leaves us diminished, degraded, and in in cooperation with those that have diminished and degraded us. Now, there's another kind of grief, too. It's called sympathetic grief. And that's the kind of grief where we stand outside of someone's pain and suffering, outside their wounds, their hurts, and we send messages of sympathy. We can stand back at a distance. And oftentimes those messages, while well-intended, are pretty ridiculous. Oh, I know how you're feeling. 
Uh, let me know if there's anything that I can do for you. But it's easy to send a message while you're standing a safe distance away from the pain and the suffering and the tragedy and the injustice. And all that does is compound the grief of the griever. It leaves people feeling alone and isolated. But there's another kind of grief. And it's the grief that I think that we are called to, and that's prophetic grief. And in the words of Otis Moss Jr., the father, the reverend of the author of the book we're going through, he says this about prophetic grief. Prophetic grief is to stand inside of another's wounds and have that blood splattered not only on your clothes, but on your soul. Pathetic grief is, is dangerous. Sympathetic grief is damaging. But prophetic grief, it's a call. It's a call on our life. And the beauty of prophetic grief is that it's not something that imprison us, imprisons us or defines us. Instead, we follow the path of righteousness and it takes us through the pain and suffering but it doesn't tie us down to that space. This prophetic grieving, it takes us to this place of assurance, a place of hope, a place where we know deep inside that there is something bigger than all of this going on, something hopeful. And it's far more than just crying and weeping and mourning, prophetic grief. It's about seeing and seeking and serving and sowing something good and something true and something beautiful in the midst of pain and suffering. And when we grieve this way, the beauty of all of this is when we can actually grieve this way, we say to the world that love is stronger than hate, that God's grace is greater than our grief, and that God's strength and power is greater than our pain. Because in prophetic grief, we see the world at its darkest. And we grieve with those who grieve. And we weep sometimes. But we don't give in to the cynicism and the hatred and the violence. Here's what I love about prophetic grief. This grief we're called to, it's the kind of grief that says we might weep all night, but in the morning there'll be joy. It's the kind of grief that says weep not like those who have hope. It's the kind of grief that brings healing in the midst of our pain. And what the reverend says is we mourn as we work for change. That's prophetic grief. The basis of all of this is the understanding that we are all wonderfully and fearfully made. And when we understand that, what we know is that we are so much more than any crime that's ever been committed against us. We see that we are so much more than any loss we've suffered. And the beauty about knowing this 
is that we can forgive, but it doesn't diminish ourselves. We can forgive, and it's not giving in. But we can forgive, and in that be true to the divine nature in each and every one of us. And it's a nature that can't be taken from us. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing outside or beyond the presence of and love of God. That's our assurance. And so the question becomes, how do we live out of that truth? How do we be part of this prophetic grieving and forgiving and change in this world that needs it so desperately? All you guys know this story. But in the summer of 2015, it was was June in Charleston, South Carolina, One evening, a 21-year-old white male walked into a church. That church was one of the most revered black churches in the South, Emmanuel A.M.E. This young man sat down in the circle right next to the pastor. They welcomed him in. And as the pastor was leading the Bible study, they broke for some prayer. And as they bent their heads to pray, this young man unzipped a fanny pack and he pulled out a handgun and he shot and murdered six women and three men in that circle. Dylan Roof, you guys know the story, you've heard the name. But the saddest thing about this, he had no connection to anyone there. He had no connection to the church. It literally was a plan based in hatred. He said that when he confessed. It was a plan based in hatred. Well, of course, and his hope on top of that was, his stated hope was to start a race war. He wanted to cause African Americans to become violent so that we could have this race war. And of course, everyone The community, the nation were outraged. And as people clamored to say, what should we do? How do we punish this guy? How severe can it be? Do we call, go for the death penalty? What do we do? What took people by surprise the most was some of the families of the murdered victims, their reactions. Because some of the families came forward. And instead of screaming their outrage or demanding the most severe punishment, what they said was, We forgive you. And the journalists and the public were astounded. I mean, some used the word confounded. They did not understand these families' responses to this tragedy. 
when we talk about prophetic grieving, when we talk about forgiveness, we are talking about the power of faith. A divine power that is in each and every one of us. And that's what these families had, the power of faith. I'm going to turn it over to the Reverend Dr. Moss III because he says it better than anybody else could say it. Jesus is an appendage or a scarf to wrap around your neck. The Holy Ghost is not a bellhop to hook you up. Or God is simply an ATM to give you your blessings. This is a faith that is being tied to the sacred where you give your life to the divine. This is a faith where miracles are not anomalies. Redemption is not a fairy tale. Deliverance is more than a descriptive adjective but an active verb permeating the soul of every believer. This is a faith where Tubman learned her freedom. Douglas discovered abolition. Du Bois discovered intellect. Zora found her literary power. Langston crafted poets. And Ida B. Wells discovered her journalistic integrity. This yes, is the faith yes. where dreams are ignited. Visions are made flesh. Declarations become edicts of hope. And love breathes life into lifeless bodies. The faith of the families in Charleston is the real story. Stop writing about Dylan Roof. If you really want to understand the power of faith, you need to write about nine prayer warriors you need to write about those who said this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine but do not do not operate in some simple uh, isolated phrase Emmanuel AME has experienced domestic terror from the time it was born this is the church where Denmark VC was the founding member who organized the largest slave revolt in the United States this is the church where two ministers were exiled from South Carolina because they tried to teach black people to read. This is the church that was burned. This is the church that was bombed. This is the church that had to meet in secret. This is the church where Reverend Pinckney had to fight against those who were still haunted by the, by the ghosts of the Confederacy. So what happened at Emanuel AME? They have experienced domestic terror from the time that they were born. And I'm here to let you know, when you've been in the fight long enough, you know how to get up after you've been knocked down and I don't know if there's anyone up in here you know we've been fighting and you know how to get back up we have to teach a new generation how to fight to learn Paul's words ah, to learn that for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or nor depth, anything created, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We must learn prophetic grief. Prophetic grief is a daughter saying, I do not have hate in my heart. Prophetic grief is a young man after he lost his mother, putting his arms around his sister and saying, we're going to be all right. You don't understand that faith. Well, we you have had generation after generation pour into you to let you know that there's a power in you that nobody can take away and I say to everybody who is a part of y'all there is a power in you there is a power in you do not give up the power that God has placed in you you shall do greater things you shall imagine great dreams is there anybody here do you know there is a power in you. Yeah. 
is nothing. 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 Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Should have just let him preach the whole thing. <laughs> that was too good to pass up. I can't tell you how many times I listened to the whole thing this week because it was so moving. And such a good reminder that at the end of the day, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I'm going to close it up by asking you guys to join me instead of a prayer in a benediction. So together, as we remember that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, that it is the power within each of us that allows us to keep on Together, join me. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I was thinking... I'll get choked up. I was thinking during the music about one of the things I love the most about this community is we actually know each other's stories. We know some of the hurt and the pain. We've walked that life together. We've stood in it, that prophetic grieving. We've chosen that way. We've known about the broken relationships. We've known about the hard diagnoses. We've known about the mental health issues. We've known about the lost babies. We've known... We've shared those stories. I can't think of one more. I cannot think of anything more hopeful than knowing that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No pain, no suffering, nothing can separate us from that love that we know in Jesus Christ. Before I do the benediction, um, I want to remind everyone just one more time because it's, it starts up so quickly. The next five Wednesdays, starting this Wednesday, we will meet for service. And the cool thing is all you have to do is show up and you get pizza. You can eat. You can come right from work, from whatever you're doing with your kids. You just show up. You get pizza. We'll have a 45-minute service where we will gather and worship. And we just really encourage people to come. And it's, we'll have Labor Day off, and then we'll kick it in on Welcome Back Sunday in September. So with that, please hold your hands out for the benediction and hear these words. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter who you love or what you've lost, no matter where you've been or the places that you've stayed, you always have a place at the table. You are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go in peace and we'll see you on Wednesday. Thanks, everybody.